Let's take our Bibles. Let's do our Bible study this evening. We are headed all the way to the book of 2 Corinthians. I am so glad that you came this evening and not stay home and watch Donald Trump. I feel honored that you would come and be here for the service. You can pick him up later. Uh, but I'm glad that you are here. If those of you joining us at home, we are continuing our series. As these folk know and have the notes in front of them, we're talking about the Lord's return. In fact, we talked about it this morning. We talked about this idea that Jesus Christ can come back at any moment, that the rapture will take place. We explained that it's the sudden removal of those bodies of the deceased saints who have died ever since Jesus Christ has ascended up into heaven. And what happens is their souls will be taken from the grave and they'll be reunited with their spirits. Then right immediately right after that, without any hesitation of time, then we who are alive, we're going to be physically removed from this earth. We meet the Lord in the air and uh, then we have our bodies changed in that transition from here to the clouds and we meet the Lord and we return to heaven to be with Jesus Christ, those other saints, and we'll be there throughout that period of the tribulation as I understand the Bible's explanation of the timing. And those who are left on earth, they are going to face that seven years of tribulation whenever it starts after the rapture. It could be immediate. It could be a period of time. I don't know. We don't know. You don't know exactly what type of a gap there is between that moment and the beginning of the tribulation. But then that tribulation goes on. And we've been talking about the last few weeks, what happens to people on planet earth? And we've given you some of that information. Let's step back and talk about what happens to us who leave planet earth. We go to heaven. What do we do? What happens up there? Well, what the Bible indicates is that we who are raptured, the first thing that's going to happen to us when we get to heaven is the Bema seat. That's the doctrinal term for it. Some of you know it as the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. It is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says we must all appear, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men because we are made manifest unto God. Let's look at this passage and let's just break it down. This text and then there's another one we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we're going to jump back and forth between the two. They both talk about it. So if you want to hold your finger here and then also put a pen or pencil in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 we'll start here and then we'll jump to 1 Corinthians. Let's break it down this way with alliteration of peace tonight. The people in the judgment, the one who's doing the judgment is Jesus Christ. The people who are being judged are those of us who are born again Christians. The we, Paul's talking about, those who are saved during this period, and it's going to be every single one. It's going to be all who are born again during the church age, those who have already died, those who are living at the time that Jesus comes back, and every one of them, all of us, each of us individually is going to have to give an account of themselves before Jesus Christ. And so that whole idea is frequently mentioned in the scriptures that we are going to be judged. Look at these passages. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall shall confess. So each of us shall give an account of himself to God. We jumped to Colossians that we looked about, looked at. Um, it should be chapter 3 instead of chapter 4, excuse me. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. Look at another text, Luke chapter 14. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Another passage, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the fire shall try every man's work. The idea that 
you're going to be examined. 1 Corinthians 4, with me it is a small thing that I should be judged of you, for I know he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will manifest the counsel of the hearts. Then every man shall have his praise of God. You go to the passages in the New Testament where Jesus gives the parable about how he leaves and then the steward comes, uh, the master leaves and gives the stewards responsibilities, talents, and comes back and there's a judgment day. This concept of being judged is frequently found in Scripture and it's going to involve Jesus judging those who are born again at the Bema seat judgment. There is an entirely different judgment for the lost people. That is going to be called the great white throne judgment that we will discuss later on as we get to what happens after the tribulation. The place of the judgment for we who are born again, look at the context of this passage. Right before he talks about we must all be here, appear before the judgment seat, he gives a, a verse that most all of you have memorized at some time where he makes this comment in verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body is what? Is present with the Lord, whether we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear. So let's put it together and combine. The context is talking about people going to heaven. The context is talking about that idea of standing in before a judgment seat, a specific place of judgment. We're going to conclude that we're talking about in heaven that this judgment takes place. The Bema seat, just for your information, is a, is a term from the ancient Near East. And again, I don't know if I did. Yeah, I did. The A and E always means when you see it on the notes, it's ancient Near East. And the ancient Near East was, there was a platform. And if they did a race where the judge was that determined the winner, he was on the Bema seat. If troops were going for a review and then rewards were given out for troops for meritorious work or valor, the Bema seat is what's going to be that elevated spot. If we were living in Bible days, the platform here would be called a Bema a raised section that maybe we could give awards from and people would give account to. And that's the idea here that there's an eighth spot in heaven where Jesus, who is elevated, is going to be making this judgment. So the place would be heaven. The person is Christ, you and me before him. <clears throat> the point of time for this, when does it take place? It seems as if the Bema seat, the judgment, is a one-time judgment when all of us Christians at that time are going to give account. One by one, we're going to answer before the Lord. And uh, he's talking about this idea that he says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up and then give, our, give an account. It seems to be that it happens you know, when we get to heaven. That, that we have that bema that will occur sometime right after the rapture. That makes perfect sense according to what we looked at this morning. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, chapter 4 pictures this big crowd of people that are having their crowns. They cast him at the lamb's feet. Then they give the praise, who's worthy, you are worthy. And they say, you've redeemed us from all uh, tongues bloodline, kindred, nations, etc., etc. <clears throat> you have made us a peoples that are now a priest and kings. And so it's that group that gives all this praise at the, at, at, the, uh, at the throne before Jesus Christ. And it all occurs in chapter 4 and 5, which I don't, this sounds silly, before chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the beginning of the seal judgments of the tribulation. So the grand possibility is the rapture takes place. We even have the Bema seat judgment even before the rapture occurs. 
Well, at least for sure up in heaven, that's going to be his focus before the seals start coming out. And so the point of the time is when we get to heaven. And we would then say, okay, it's right here. The rapture takes place before the tribulation. The bema would occur right shortly after that moment. And so that's when the places, the purpose for the judgment is what really gets difficult. In this text, you look at it. It says you are going to receive in your, the things done in your body, whether it be what? What does the Second Corinthians 5.10 say? Whether it be good or... Okay, now we open up Pandora's box. Now there's a whole group of Christians that are going to be saying, okay, what happens is we're going to give answer for every word we spoke, every deed we did, every loss of temper, every lack of self-control. We're going to have to answer for this. And we're going to be judged for everything, whether it be good or bad. And so some will be making these suggestions. And here's my answer to what some will say. This is not a judgment to determine who's going to be in heaven and who's not. <clears throat> this is not the same judgment that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7. Remember Matthew 7, he said that many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied, done good things in your name? And I will say unto them, depart from me, ye workers of, because I never knew you. This is not that same judgment. That is the great white throne judgment. That is, could be, the, or as well, the sheep goat judgment. Those things occur after the tribulation or sometime even beyond that. And so this is a judgment that takes place not whether or not you go to heaven. And one of the most obvious reasons that that is why, that is not why the judgment is, is because we're already there. We're already there in heaven. It's not, do you get to come in? We're there. It's for the believers who appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you look back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, and again, we're just going to touch on it right now and then come back to the passage. But look at 1 Corinthians 3. This is critical to understand this judgment. It's that same idea, the same uh, the, the story is we're going to be judged, our lives are going to be put to the fire, and we're going to be judged. I want you to catch a couple phrases that happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay? That, that idea of, of is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So the people who are being judged in 1 Corinthians 3 are people who have already had the faith based on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And they've been building upon that foundation. To have your faith placed upon Jesus Christ means you are already born again. And so this is a judgment of born-again believers that are, that are not going to lose their salvation. How do I know that? Look at the phrase here in 1 Corinthians 3 where he says in verse 15, If you suffer loss, he himself shall be... What's your Bible read? You, you can suffer loss, but you don't lose your salvation. You are still saved, yet so as by fire. The idea is you're still saved. You got nothing left to show, no crowns, no rewards, but you're in heaven. Okay, and so the, the point is, this is not a, a judgment of whether or not you get into heaven. This is for people who are born again. How long are you born again? Forever. Does he take it away? No, he's given you what kind of life? Eternal life that never perishes. So this is not a judgment of whether or not you go into heaven. This is, therefore, it cannot be 
It cannot be a judgment of counting for your sins. When I was a teenager and first got saved, I thought this was, whoa, this is really a challenging thought. We're going to stand before Jesus. Jesus is going to put on a big screen. And we had evangelists come through the church and they would say this, your life will be on a screen. Everybody is going to see everything you did in private. Everything you did, you thought. And I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? How would you like to have a video clip shown to everybody of your thought life? What about when you, you know, in, in your private moments and, and, they, and the evangelists go on, you're going to have to give an account. And the evangelist went on and said, and God would even say to some of you, go and stay over there until I'm done with the others. You go over there for a while. In heaven, you mean there's a purgatory in heaven? The Catholic doctrine permeated the, the Bible? No. No, we're not giving an account for our sins. If you and I have to give an account for our sins, think it through. What is the wages of sin? It's death. If you have to answer for one sin in heaven that you have done, then what's going to be the response? You don't deserve to be in heaven. You can't stay in heaven. If we're giving an account, Jesus made these comments. Your sins and your iniquities will I... Okay, we left off a phrase here. I will remember no more. Okay, we're not giving an account because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We're not going to be answering for our sins. Okay, we're going to be answering for our service, but not our sins. Thank God. Okay, because we could never, we could never give a good enough answer for that. Besides, Romans 8 in that passage says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. There is therefore... Now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. This is not a judgment for our sins. It's not a judgment to determine whether we deserve to be in heaven because the reality is none of us deserve to go to heaven. And when we get there, we'll even know it more. We don't deserve to be here. We are there by the grace of God. Okay? So what's it going to be giving account of? We're going to give account of our service. What did we do for Jesus since we were born again, after we had that foundation? And so he says we're going to give an answer for what is good or bad. You have to understand the original language at this moment, at this text. Okay? This is very important. I know that typically most of you, and uh, me for the most part, we aren't great, great scholars in the original, but this one's very important. The, the wording he uses here, the context in here, it is not the idea of what is immoral or what is not moral. It's not something that, that is good and bad as evil as opposed to not evil. It is the difference of what is really profitable and what is not profitable, what is valuable and what what is not valuable. It's not a moral, ethical issue in this text. What he's talking about, the good has the idea of what is beneficial, what is good for somebody, that, that, that is helpful, valuable, beneficial, lasting. The bad is something that was worthless, wasted, not necessarily sinful in, in and of its structure. We're not, we're not talking about something unethical. We're just talking about something that really wasn't as valuable. It wasn't as important, but people get caught up with it. That matches 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, if you page back there, let's set the stage. Jesus did this at one other time. Jesus used your used building a building as a, a parallel, a similarity to your life. Do you remember when he did it in Matthew chapter 7? 
In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how you live your life. And the way you lived your life is kind of like building on something. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The foolish man built his house upon sand. He's talking about living. Your house was how do you live? Where do you, what, do you, what do you do with your life? And in that case, he's talking to everybody, saved and unsaved. You build on the right foundation or a bad foundation, but you're building. Your life is like a house you're building. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the Apostle Paul this time under inspiration says, okay, here your life, though your Christian service is like building a building, building a house. And he talks about it where he says, other foundation can no man lay, and in verse 11, than that which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because because it shall be revealed by fire. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a crown, a reward, a stephanos. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are, etc., etc. And so Paul and Jesus do the same things. They talk about your life is like a house. And so we stop, we start thinking about it. Okay, the people in Corinth were people that were building bad, bad dwelling places. Their their lives were like houses that were showing up to be like shacks. That all of a sudden they're they're not they're not doing real good. They're jealous of one another. They're suing one another. They're um, they're being immoral. They're putting up with judging and having favorite preachers. There are some insisting on their rights uh, over over helping other people. There are some who are standing there and saying, "I got a better gift than you do," and it's all this going on. He says, "You're not building good houses." You're not building good, good works in, in your life. And so what he does is he's going to be telling them in this context, be very careful how you build. And let's pause for a second. Let's think this through. If you're going to build a really good building that lasts, what's the first thing you need to have? It's already mentioned. You have to have a good foundation. Then what, what do you have to have? The materials. You've got to build with materials that are going to... They're going to last, okay? What else do you need to do? Okay? You better follow a plan and build in a way that the materials, them them and of themselves, if they're not put together properly, if the workmanship is bad, can the house collapse? You might have the right material, but if it's not put together the way it should be, it's not going to last. So we look and say, okay, you have to have a strong foundation. That's verses 10 and 11. Then you have to build, as you guys said already, the quality materials. He talks about you have a choice. You can be building like the three little pigs. You can be building with wood, hay, stubble, or you can be building with that which is like the brick that's going to last. And in this passage, he calls it gold, silver, precious stones. And he says, you have that choice. And then we would know proper workmanship. He says, we're going to not only, Jesus is not going to look at what is the material that's built on the right foundation, what of, of what sort it is. How did you build it? Why did you build it? So Jesus is going to examine this. And then you have to say, okay, wait a minute. I need to be careful. Why? Why do we be careful? I, I just saw how, but why do I need to be careful? Well, because Jesus is going to test your life by fire. 
Now think through this idea of being tested by fire. Testing something, examining it by fire, it'll, when, when you put metals, ores, to the test of fire, what happens? It burns away all the dross or, or it separates the really good from the really bad. In this case, it's going to eat up. The fire's going to destroy the wood, hay, stubble. Nothing left over. But the precious stones, the gold, silver, and precious works, they're going to last. And we know that fire is going to consume that which isn't lasting. Okay, that which isn't durable, it's going to be destroyed by fire. In fact, that examining by fire, the, the other thought that comes to my mind is it's going to examine every part. I mean, when a fire gets into a home, how many places does it go? Okay, it's going to go everywhere as much as it can. And so it's this idea that it's going to be a very thorough examination of your life and your service that's done for Jesus Christ, including the areas that others do not see. That what, what have you done in private? How have you served Christ when no other Christians are around? How do I know that? The hidden things are brought forward, Paul says. When I'm going to stand before the Lord, God will even see the hidden things, the counsels of my heart. We don't know why you serve. You don't know why I preach. You don't know my motivation. Okay? But God knows my motivation. And I'm going to have to give an account. Yes, am I serving? Am I doing and using the gift that God has given me? Yes, but he's not going to look at just what I did, but why did I do it? To determine is it gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, and stubble. And so he's going to look at our life, thoroughly examine our service for him. And so in this examination, the questions would be, he's going to ask, what did you spend your time your treasures, your talents, what did you spend them on? And there's other things, there's things in our life that are very, that are, that are okay. They're good even. Okay, there's nothing wrong with the house. There's nothing wrong with vacation. There's nothing wrong with a nice car. There's nothing wrong with those things. But if they consume us, and if they dominate us, and if they pull us away from service to Christ, then that thing which is okay and good becomes worthless, bad. And so he says, okay, what did you spend your time on? Things that are lasting. Things that are, that are temporal. What, when, why did you serve when you served? Why did you teach that class? Why did you hold that Bible study? Why did you give sacrificially? Why did you say, okay, I'm going to be a, uh, an officer in the church. I'll make myself available. Did you do it? so that you would be popular with others, so you could have authority, so that people would laud you? Or did you do it because you just wanted to serve God and others? That's going to be examined. How did you serve? My service is going to be clearly, according to First Peter chapter 5, the way I serve, the way I shepherd, not just why I did it, but also how I did it. Did I lead as one that was forcing the flock or lead by example? Did I have concern for the flock? He's going to look at how did I do my job? How did I do my service to him? And so this is a very thorough exam that Jesus is going to have for each and every one of us. And when he's all done examining, what's left? Is there going to be service that is left for Jesus Christ? The way that you raised your kids, the way that you gave out the gospel, the way that you, you sacrificed to help to, to get out missions, the way that you were, you were conducting your own life, the way that Colossians chapter 3, the way that you worked with ethics and with honesty and with integrity, or was it just to be a man pleaser and when the boss came then I worked hard. Those things are being taken into account and what he's doing he's saying do I give you a reward for that or not? 
And so he's examining all of this very thoroughly. Should we make this comment in this text? In 1 Corinthians 3, if, and I read the passages a little bit beyond, in this context, he takes us right into the idea of church, your local church. In this passage, he talks about you all are, and he talks about the singular house of God. Not that all of you are all temples of God, but you. All of you form a temple of God. This is a local church. We all, even though that we are small temples, in this context, in this passage, in this setting, he's talking, he says, I want to remind you, you all form a church. Right in the same context of how you serve. Which brings me to the idea then, part of this service is, how did you impact your local church? What did you do for the body of Christ? How did you serve other Christians? How did you use your gifts and talents, which God has given every single one of you, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the local church? And so the examination is going to include what did you contribute? How did you contribute to your church? Something else that's an FYI here. Jesus wants to reward you. Jesus isn't sitting in heaven and saying, hey, I only have so many crowns to give out. And let's go on a, you know, let's go on a curve. Or let's Jesus wants to reward you. He is anxious to reward you. He is willing to reward you. And so he's not holding back. He wants to give. The person who is going to stymie your rewards isn't Jesus Christ. It's you and me. It's if we serve the way we ought to, why we ought to, how we ought to. And so when we come back to this, we talk about the potential losses. What does it mean then that there's going to be a loss? And the Bible does talk about a loss of rewards. It says, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. It says in John's writings, look to yourself that you lose not those things which we have wrought, that you might receive your full reward. Okay, and we go back that some will suggest, oh, oh, what this means is you're going to be punished for unconfessed sins. Again, if you have to answer for your sins, what's the answer? Damnation. This is not answering for sins. This is not we're going to be put out of heaven, which some have suggested. This is not some type of temporary purgatory. That can't be what it is to be consistent with Scripture. All these ideas make salvation dependent upon you and me. Salvation is not dependent upon us. Salvation is all of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Okay, so this isn't that we're going to be judged for, for sins or damned or doomed in that way. Then what is it? And I want to add this to it. Some are going to be embarrassed at this judgment seat. Okay, our little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So what is the loss? <clears throat> the way that I understand the loss that, that makes the most sense is we are made aware of what we could have earned. That would be a tremendous loss. The tremendous loss is, you know what, I wanted to give you this reward, but you know, your lack of self-control. You would have that in and of itself would be terrible to realize Jesus wanted to commend us he gave us an opportunity to serve. He sent that person your, your, into your life to witness, and you didn't. And knowing that, man, I didn't get that, that would be tremendous loss and embarrassment in and of itself. And so the idea of the loss could, would have nothing could be very simply, by the time it's all done, we don't have anything to give back to Jesus. Because we got saved, and then we lived our life just for ourselves. That would be a tremendous loss. 
that we couldn't, couldn't throw back crowns. And so the, there is disappointment, there is regret to some people that will stand at this judgment seat. They won't lose their salvation, they'll be saved yet so as by fire or the skin of their teeth. And so that's going to happen. So the big question is what do we do to earn rewards? If we can earn rewards, does Jesus tell us how to do it? Does he tell us what's expected of us? I always appreciate professors who at the beginning of the semester would say, by the way, here we're going to give you exams. Here's what we're looking for. And that was tremendously helpful to know what were they going to ask us about later on. And so Jesus, through his apostles, mentions specifically several different crowns that he lists out, that he spells out very clearly. They are called crowns. I remind you that the word is not a crown like a diadem. That is for somebody given authority. That is not this judgment. These are stephanoi. These are the laurel wreaths that even the Olympians wear today when they get a crown. It's that kind of a concept. You've run the race. You've won the race. You've been faithful and diligent. Therefore, you get one of these laurel wreaths. That's the word here, a reward in that regard. One of the crowns specifically stated in Scripture is found here. It is the idea that some call the crown of rejoicing or the soul winner's crown. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing are not even you, Paul says. That I have led you to the Lord and I have this crown of rejoicing to see that you are in heaven because of my witness. And so with that idea in scriptures that you, I, can get a crown by the influence we had on somebody to get saved. Remember how 1 Corinthians talks about this chapter 3? He says, I have planted a Apollos is watered. But God gave the increase. So then neither he that plants is anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his reward according to his labor. His labor in what? Bringing somebody to Christ. But at the same time, what do we know? It's not us who brings them to Christ. It's God who saved them. But if we played a part, if we planted the seed, if we watered the seed, we're going to participate in the reward, in the crown that's given out for those people getting saved. And so with this, this idea, okay, you and I have to pause and say, how do we get this re- What kind of things could we do now that would merit us that reward in the future? That's a question for you to answer. What kind of things can we do now that would play into this type of a crown? What do you mean by that? Okay. Sharing a testimony. Okay. What else? Okay. Living in a way that's a, that helps the gospel. What else? Hmm? Teach the kids. Give, give, make sure that the gospel is clear to your family. What else? How do, you, how do you vest yourself into helping getting out the gospel? Tracks. Supporting missions. Okay. How, how do we support missions? Praying for the missionary. How else? Giving for the missionaries. Okay. To say, okay, it's one thing for me to talk about this and you to think about it, but, but to pause and say, then what do I need to do? Take some tracks. Give out a gospel witness. Invite somebody to hear the gospel. Have somebody over into your home that you can uh, offer to do a Bible study with them. 
when we come into next month, when we come into missions, pray for the missionaries. Consider what you're going to invest in Sacrificial Sunday. That is one of the reasons that we do that, to help saying, okay, this is a way that some of us can't go overseas, but we can invest in and we can sacrifice even financially to help with missions. There's all these different opportunities to go to the addiction center, to do a rest home ministry. Some of them are on the, on the hold right now, but there are means by which we can give out the gospel that is going to be merited, going to be rewarded. Jesus is looking for your efforts in these areas. There's another crown, the crown of righteousness, that he talks about. There is laid up for me a crown because I'm looking for his appearing. And he says, but not to me only, but also to them who love his appearing. How does this work out? What does this mean? It involves, and it's going to come to people who actually are thinking about acting, living as if Jesus Christ could come back. I am ready for him to come back. I am looking for him to come back. I am motivated for him to come back. Remember what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? That we must all before, appear before the Bema seat, giving account of ourselves to receive, whether it be good or bad, the things done in our body, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord we persuade men. We are motivated by the fact that he is coming back and that impacts us. We're looking for his appearing. We're acting like he could come back. We're, we're living like he could come back. We even pause and think, what would this, you know, should I do this? Should I not do this? Well, how would I feel if Jesus Christ came back today and I were in this spot or doing this thing? That is looking for his appearing. That is, that is living it out. That is going to be rewarded if you have that mindset. For the preachers, there's one that's called the crown of glory. Feed the flock of God. Be examples when the chief shepherd shall appear. You receive a crown of glory. And this is the one that isn't for everyone as a possibility. This is for those who serve in the office of pastors. Are they faithful? Are they not? And they're going to be rewarded accordingly. There is another one mentioned. The incorruptible crown. This crown is one that all of you can can have, but this is the hard. This is a really hard one. Every athlete, and I have had this paraphrase: every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The idea of this passage, this crown, is that you are keeping your body under control. You are not letting, letting yourself just, your flesh take charge. You are not giving in to every whim and lazy temptation. That you aren't letting every, every challenge to your anger just fly off the handle. You're exercising self-control. You're practicing like an athlete that a good idea of exercise and diet spiritually that you are keeping your body under control. You're not giving in to temptations. That you are saying no. Does Jesus take account of you saying no to temptation? He does. He does. Does he take account of you growing in faith and saying, okay, I'm going to mature myself? Yes, he does. That you learn not to, not to shoot off your mouth, but to keep it under control. He takes uh, observation of that. He's going to commend you for that. He's going to give rewards for those of you who are maturing in this way. Then he talks about a crown of life. This one is mentioned in a couple different texts. In Revelations 2, it's mentioned those who actually give up their life for Jesus Christ. Those who are martyred. In James it says, Blessed is the man that endures trials, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life. Do you remember how James says you're supposed to handle trials? And when you fall into diverse temptations, count it all joy. Okay? And if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Let patience have her maturing work. 
And so the idea is, how do you handle your trials? you got, you got to stop and pause and be serious about this. How have you handled COVID? Have you handled it in an exemplary way of saying, I have handled it in a way that I've wanted to honor Jesus Christ to the best of my abilities? How, how have you handled the idea of serving Jesus when it gets hard? When other people oppose you to serve Jesus Christ? And by the way, we're going to see more of that in the future, yes? You do realize it's going to get worse in the future. That you, know, you see this in, the, in this generation. Right? We're, we're going to be challenged more and more. What's good is going to be called evil. And what's evil is going to be called good. And that means those of us who oppose evil and say it's wrong, we are going to be called hate people more and more in the time ahead. I'm fully convinced of that. I don't know about you. I think that we are going to be the hate mongers of the future. And so what's going to, we're not intentionally, but that's the way we're going to be perceived and that's the way we're going to be um, described. How are we going to handle serving Christ as more and more of that pressure comes against us? Do we go more underground in our faith? Do we give up? Do we stop? Or do we say, I'm going to remain faithful to Christ? That's a crown that he gives to people who are remaining faithful and loyal. No matter what others do, what others say, or how they are treated. It's, it's called the crown of life or the martyr's crown. Are these the only war, rewards possible? I don't think so. Okay, these are the ones that are specifically named. But it strikes me like in Colossians when we did that study just a few months ago where he makes this comment, servants obey your masters in all things. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It seems to me that even what is your testimony at work, he's, he's observing. Christ is going to command he is going to give a reward for how were you in your ethics at work? How were you in your testimony at work? Why did you do the job that you did? Did you do it in a way, as we mentioned before, as a man pleaser or as for the glory of Jesus Christ? Even the parables talk about God putting talents, putting responsibilities in the hands of individuals. The master goes away, the master comes back, and he wants to know what did you do with your talents? What did you do with the spiritual gifts that God has given you? What have you been doing with the, with the abilities God has given you? That we're going to, we could be getting rewards by using them in a way that is to the best of his glory and his honor. Then there is in this, in this whole study, there's going to be a praise after the judgment. It is not found in 1 Corinthians or in 2 Corinthians, but the praise is found in Revelation chapter 4, where it says, all of us will cast our crowns before the throne to give glory to Jesus Christ. We're, we're doing it because we appreciate it. We understand the fact. The only reason that we're in heaven is because of Jesus. The only reason that we had opportunity to serve him is because of Jesus. The only way that we were able to serve Jesus was because of Jesus. So what's going to be our, in our natural response? Let's give him back to Jesus. He deserves them anyway. Okay, and so there's going to be that, that moment that we're all praising, we're giving back, we're throwing our crowns. I want to have something in hand to throw back to Jesus. I don't want to be standing there and going, that to me would be the great embarrassment. That would be the loss of reward. Just knowing that, he, that I lived in a way that wasn't something that he commended because I did it selfishly or I didn't do it the proper way that he was looking for. 
or I spent my time in things that really don't matter. Oh, they're nice. And, and I got to mention something. The house, the car, the vacations, they're nice. We enjoy them. Nothing wrong with them. But if I did all that to the neglect of serving Christ, there's going to be embarrassment. And so there we have all of those things. Now, let, let's just bring it down with a few questions and bring it together. I, this, this, to me, is a very, very, very important question I want to throw to you and ask you your opinion on this. Why do you think God bothered telling us about these rewards? As an incentive? Okay. Terry, was that you that said? Same thing? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't hear what they said, uh, a couple of the men shouted out as an incentive. Alou mentioned he wants us to have them. He is giving us this information for a reason. Letting us know this is what we could do. This is what he is looking for. This is what, what is potentially ahead of us. Therefore, I've given you the information. Go for it. Get after these rewards. These are the ones that I'm looking for. You get then, then look and, and go after it. Our Christian service, I think this is not a question, but this is a fact. Our Christian service is important to Jesus. He's going to examine it. Therefore, it should be important to us as well. Would you agree with that? If he considers it important and looking for it, then we should be involved in it. Our Christian service, and this is so important, will not be overlooked by Jesus. Some of you have been doing this that nobody knows about. Some of you have been giving out the gospel, doing private Bible studies that you've not told anybody about. But Jesus knows about it. Some of you have been sending messages on the internet, sending messages in tracts and envelopes. Nobody knows you've been doing it. You've never stood up and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. But you're quietly giving out the gospel. Does Jesus see that? Yes, he does. Some of you have made great effort and great pain at learning to control your speech. And for some of us, it's taken a whole lot of effort than others to say, okay, I'm going to really work at control. Nobody sees it. Nobody notices it. Some of us don't know your whole background and what, what growth you've had, but Jesus sees it. Jesus notices it. Some of you have at your workplace, you have been taking it on the chin because you have been so faithful, so ethical, working hard. Your co-workers, they make fun of you. They ridicule you. And sometimes you're thinking, well, I don't get the promotion. But Jesus sees it. Jesus will reward it. Some, some of us don't know how some of you have been handling your trials. But in quiet, you have been so faithful, so loyal to Christ in tremendous difficult moments, physically, financially, socially, and you just remain loyal to Jesus Christ. Does he see that? He does. And he rewards it. He notices it. Christ is concerned about our Christian service that it has good quality. We've already mentioned this. But not only quality, but good motives. That's so important. And let's wrap up with this. Since Jesus will judge all believers' service, all believers can serve in some way. He says, I'm going to have you all come forward. You all have potential, therefore, to earn rewards. You say, but I don't have the same potential that you might have, Wayne. That's true. And I don't have the same potential you have. I don't have the same opportunities. But every single one of us has opportunity to earn rewards. There's a, 
there's a passage that I'll, I'll never forget. The man who had tremendous impact in my life that many of you don't know. Some of you, he came and preached a couple times in our church. But he started our seminary where we went to school and he was tremendously impacting in the founding of our church. And he used this verse as his favorite verse of Scripture. His life verse. He said that as he was in the military and thinking, God, how can I serve you? You saved me. I didn't deserve it. God, what could I do for you? I've got nothing. The man hadn't got finished high school. The man didn't have, uh, didn't have a great background, grew up basically between orphanages and some different homes and was just a reprobate type of life. He gets born again. His life is drastically changed. And he really wants to serve Jesus. Jesus, could you use somebody like me? Could you help me? Could, could I be used? And this verse is not talking about um, you know, all your gifts and talents in all areas. It's really talking about your finances. But it really impressed his heart. It is, it is, here's where God goes. If there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that man has, not according to that he has not. The idea in giving, giving sacrificially. God doesn't care what you would do if you had a million dollars. God cares with what you do with what you already have. You, know, you may not have a million dollars, but what do you do with what you've got? You may not give as much as a million dollar person, but that's okay. Do you remember the widow who gave two mites? Is commended for all eternity? That's the context. And this mentor of mine took that as just giving this life principle. It's not what I have, it's what I just give to Jesus Christ. I don't have to be as talented as you. I don't have to be as gifted as some of you. I don't have to be as smart as some of you. And I'm not. Some of you are highly trained. Some of you are highly educated. Some of you are highly gifted and talented in so many different ways. But that's okay. I'm going to give an account for what I am, what I have, what I can do, and so are you. It may not be the same thing. You don't preach, but you have a different pulpit. You, you, you don't lead a body, but you lead a family. What are you doing? It's according to what you have. The question is, are you willing to serve Christ in the place and the opportunity that he has given you? If you are, Jesus will reward you one day.